This is the Hofstra Radio Alumni Audio Yearbook. Today is May 6, 2021. Please tell us your name and the years you were at Hofstra Radio. Hi, my name is Jim Helfgott, and I was at Hofstra Radio from uh, 1975 to 1979. And what titles and positions did you hold at the station? Well, I had a number of positions. I was the chief remote engineer. I was an executive engineer, and I was station manager for the last uh, year and a half that I was there. Okay. And what uh, shows did you work on or produce or host while you were at Hofstra Radio? Well, during the time that I was at Hofstra Radio, there was a show called Changes that was every night of the week. And it ran from about uh, 10 o'clock at night till 2 o'clock in the morning. Uh, music show. And I did uh, Thursday night changes uh, from uh, 10 till 2 a.m. I also uh, produced and uh, hosted a show called Manishma, which was a modern Hasidic uh, Hebrew music show. Okay. Um, were there public affairs shows that you worked on or maybe weekend community program, any of those types of shows? Um, I did not do a lot of on-air public affairs. I was involved, as I said, uh, doing a lot of remote work. We did, um, there used to be a, a bar across the street from uh, uh, Hostra that we used to do uh, jazz shows from every week. Uh, we did uh, music shows from the uh, Hempstead uh, Town Hall that uh, we produced every week. Um, that was a classical music show. And then uh, we also produced all of the uh, uh, Hofstra basketball games. Okay. When you were on the air, did you use your own name? Did you have an on-air name or a nickname? No, I used my own name when I was on air. Okay. So this is a two-part question, and you can answer it however you'd like, whatever order. But my, my first interest is what first brought you to the radio station at Hofstra? And then second... What was it like when you got there? Where was the station? Maybe if you can remember people that you met or what circumstances brought you there. Sure. Well, first of all, the station back when, when I was working there was called WVHC. Um, so that was the station that uh, you know we kind of focused on. And, I, and I, actually what happened was my first day at school, I remember walking through the quad and uh, there was a remote, a radio remote being done, and there was a bunch of guys out there with uh, some turntables. Believe it or not, they were using turntables back then, mm. and uh, they were uh, uh, running some music and and uh, doing some talk. And I went over and kind of gravitated towards that. And and the amazing thing about radio, and I think a lot of people who worked at the radio station had the same experience, is it sort of defined my time at Hofstra. Uh, right from the first day that I that I went there, it got, I kind of gravitated towards it. I guess it was the technology, which, so of course, was nothing like the technology today, but it was certainly something of interest to me. And uh, uh, I always had an interest in uh, radio and TV, and the radio station was there, and I and I gravitated towards it right right from my first day walking through the quad. Did you have any prior thoughts about joining the radio station? Did you know there was a radio station? A lot of people don't know when they first get to Hofstra. 
Well, my interest in going to Hofstra was communications. I knew I was going to study communications. And uh, what I liked about the Hofstra program, even back then, was it was very much of a hands-on program. And a lot of places where, at least back in the 70s, when we went to study communications, whether it was radio or television or film, was it was a lot of theory and not a lot of hands-on experience. And what what really... uh, 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 allowed me to gravitate towards Hofstra was the idea that Hofstra was very much of a hands-on program. Back then, it was not a school of communications. It was a communications arts department, which was part of the liberal arts and sciences school. So it was not its own school, but it was also, it was very hands-on. And uh, the students did everything uh, it was not a question of, you, you know, you had to be there three years before you could touch the equipment. You were touching equipment and involved in, in the production, uh, in, in, in the radio, in the TV, and in the film department right from day one. So uh, those were the things that really uh, was what I gravitated towards when I decided to go to Hofstra in the first place. So it just happened that the radio station was there when I was walking through the quad and I sort of started a conversation with some of the guys. And as you know, radio people, uh, you just have to say hello when they talk. And uh, so it just became, it just was something I gravitated towards. I didn't uh, necessarily know I was going to uh, lean towards radio. Um, And my career after uh, Hofstra was not in radio primarily, but the things I learned in radio are things that were very translatable to the other forms of communications that I was involved. Do you remember any of the people that you met at that remote? Uh, huh. I don't. I, well, I mean, there was one guy that, that I worked with a lot when I was at Officer Radio, who has unfortunately since passed away. Uh, Elliot Lifson was his mm-hmm. name. And uh, he was somebody I was very close, became very close with. And he was there before me and kind of was one of the people that uh, pulled us in, um, you know, uh, and and being involved, at least on the engineering side initially. um, You know, Teddy Reinenberger was somebody that I I was involved with a great deal. I don't think he was probably there when we did the remote, um, when when they did the remote that that got me interested. But I I can't remember uh, anybody specifically at this point. Okay. I, it sounds pretty interesting that they managed to set up turntables outside and to, and to, I, I don't know if they were broadcasting or is it more of like a PA system? I think they were broadcasting. I remember that we did have places that we could plug in to do broadcasting in several places around uh, campus. And the quad was certainly one of those places. So I, I, I'm sure they probably plugged in. Now, this was before the antenna that the that uh, you're currently uh, uh, the station's currently broadcasting from because I was there when we put up the new antenna, uh, so it was it was really a low pa- low power situation uh, mm-hmm. just around the campus. Um, but uh, I, I'm I'm sure it was very possible that they were broadcasting at that time. Okay, so so you meet uh, these folks on the quad. So 
was the radio station office was that in Memorial Hall at the time, and the studios were in the little theater. If that is that that's, that's right on the second floor of Memorial Hall, and uh, the, the little theater was the famous uh, little theater uh, station. And it's a good thing I met those guys in the quad because uh, the first the first view you've got when you take a look at the radio station underneath the little theater can be a little underwhelming. Uh, um, you know, I mean, it, it, it was not, uh, it, it was interesting, certainly for the equipment that they were using at the time, which, you know, you look at that today, and it's certainly not very advanced equipment, but it was interesting, but it, it, uh, it, it can be a little underwhelming when you first walk in there and, you know, you have the carpets that need to be uh, cleaned and replaced, and and uh, the the two studios, the Studio A and the Studio B. And Studio A was wall to wall uh, records. Uh, if you remember what a real record is, but oh, sure. Studio A at the time was wall to wall records, and uh, and then uh, the uh, master control uh, was just the the one uh, master. Uh, Unit and two turntables, one on each side. Behind it was the uh, the broadcasting equipment and the uh, the tape deck, and that was pretty much it. Other than the cart machines, and there was a, a wall of cart carts as well, and and that was pretty much it. So, it, it, like I said, it could be a little uh, underwhelming, and, and certainly by today's standards, awful low tech. But mm-hmm. uh, it was very effective and, and it worked, and uh, I mean, you learn a lot. I mean, you you know, I guess certainly what us old timers say is you learn how to do a lot of things by the seat of your pants when you're working with that type of equipment, and, that, and that's what we did. But sure. uh, the things that we produced were pretty amazing, and and it was fun. And uh, you know, of course, the first time you meet Jeffrey. Uh, uh, he's the opposite of the little theater, right? He little theater is a little place, and Jeffrey was sort of this big personality, so uh, it was very different. But uh, he sort of, uh, you know, d- developed an attachment to what we were doing, and it really defined my four years at uh, Hofstra. I mean, you know, if I look back, you know, I did a lot of things when I was at Hofstra, but everything seemed to always circle around uh, what was happening at the radio station. Just to double back for a second, because um, I've heard other people describe the uh, the studios under the little theater as, as sort of small and cramped. Do you have a ballpark idea? Like, how big a room was that? Was, like, the master control? Oh, gosh. Uh, I guess it was maybe, um, I don't know, 10 or 12 by 12, something like that. Okay. 12 yeah, by 15 I, I, or something. You know, not not big. I've got a mental image of what it would have been like. I'm sure I've seen some some photos of the of the board and so forth. But just just getting an idea because you you said it's underwhelming, and I figure it's a it's a tight space as opposed was, to what a lot of studios tight. are. Yeah, it was very tight. It was underground, uh, so you know you ran into those water issues that they, occasionally they had at the sure. uh, we had over at the you know at the entrance where water would seep in. And uh, I remember doing having to turn the station on when we had snowstorms and just trying to get into the little theater, which was down these steep stairs and you had to shovel your way in just to get down the stairs. And then once you shoveled your way in, of course, there was all kinds of water seeping through underneath the door there. Um, so it was, it was kind of interesting. I mean, you know, it, it, it made for some great stories. I'll tell you that much. Um, and then of course, if you had to use the bathroom, there was no bathroom 
in the, in the studio and no bathroom in the little theater. So we had to go across the parking lot uh, to use the uh, the bathroom across the parking lot. And that's where we developed the idea of these uh, sort of bathroom songs, you know, because you had to have, if, if like I was doing changes from 10 at night till 2 in the morning. If I had to go to the bathroom, I had to put on a song that was long enough for me to get all the way across the parking lot into the building across the parking lot and get back again before the song ended. So you always had this list of songs that were really long, you know, like <laughs> like American Pie or uh, In the God of Davida or Alice's right. Restaurant, you know, things like that that were really long. So I had time to run across and get back before the song ended. But, huh. you know... <laughs> That's 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 classic radio uh, situation. There, it's not, nothing's convenient or easy, and it's and it's a struggle to get there. You really got to want to be on the air sometimes, if you've got to exactly. dig your way into the into the building. Exactly. Um, God. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, thinking back when I was first starting, um, you know, I had to take a uh, I had to take a class, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a announcer class and. What was interesting about the announcer class was, you know, I have very much of a New York accent. I'm, I haven't lived in New York in over 20 years, but that's something you never get rid of. And uh, back then, you, you know, having a regional accent was not really acceptable on air. Today, you know, uh, thanks to the Howard Stearns of the world and other people like that, people accept that everybody comes from somewhere and everybody brings their own regional accents with them. But back then, Everybody, you would always looking to find that that kind of standard Midwestern uh, uh, accent that nobody knew where you came from, and the announcing classes were the purpose of them would try to get rid of your New York accent. I was not very successful at that, hmm. uh, as you can still tell today, and and uh, that was the fun part of the announcing class. And then then I took an engineering class and. Back then, I don't even think it's required anymore, but back then we had to have a class uh, class three um, broadcasting license in order to be able to uh, run the uh, station at, at night or to be the, the guy who signed on and, and was responsible for the station and was taking the meter readings and so forth. So you had to go, you had to take, you had to study. We took these classes. Then you had to go into the city down to Varick Street. I'll never forget that. Uh, in New York and go to the FCC offices, take this test and hope that you pass the test. And then you got this certificate and you got to post it on, on the wall in the station. And that was like, uh, you know, gold if you were able to get one of those and post it in the, in the studio. And that sort of said that you could run the station. It's, it's certainly a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, effort to get uh, clear to be on the air. Do you remember your first time on the air? Do you remember, or at least not the specific time, do you remember your feelings about announcing the first time or running the board the first time? I do. And the funny thing about that was I had to read a, um, uh, a piece of continuity and it was only 30 seconds long, but there was, there was a phrase in that continuity, something about uh, ski slopes or something. And when I read it, it sounded like I was going down a ski slope. And I remember, <laughs> you know, and I remember my parents listening to me on the radio and being so thrilled that they could hear me on the radio, but thought it was so funny that when I read it, I kind of sounded like I was going on a ski slope mentally. You kind of felt like that's what you were doing. And 
so so it was very you know it, it, it was something that they enjoyed because they heard me on the air and then it was something i enjoyed doing for the first time it was the first of many times but i hope i got a little better as time went on <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you did so that I, I guess i'm trying to understand that that it sounded like you're going down a ski slope were you rushing were you talking fast or was it just a lot of adrenaline it was just a lot of up and down in the way i was speaking so you know it, it, it was something that talked about gentle slopes and I kind of went gentle slopes, you know, <laughs> you know, you kind of talk like you were going up and down the gentle slopes and that's what they, they were laughing at me about. But, you know, it, it's, it's something you get, as you get more comfortable with, you know, you, you kind of go with the flow. I remember when I was doing uh, changes, I used to always use uh, one of my tools was the book of lists. And I don't know if you remember Back in the 70s, they, they printed this book called The Book of Lists, and it had all these lists of top 10 this and top 10 that. It went through all this, you know, hundreds of pages of lists. And I used to use that as one of the uh, tools when I was on uh, changes to, uh, to t- give something to talk about. I mean, you, you know, it's hard when you're on the air for four hours hmm. uh, to come up with uh, with ideas and things that you want to talk about that will kind of engage the audience. And we used to have a number that people could call into, uh, but you know, I'm alone. I'm alone there from 10 to two. So you'd have the three minutes when uh, the song is playing to kind of answer a call, maybe record something and then play it back. You know, you're a one man band. Hmm. Uh, Cause we did not have, for changes, we did not have separate uh, engineers. We did the engineering and the uh, announcing ourselves. So a number of people have mentioned that there were uh, staff announcers and things like that. So, and you mentioned doing continuity your first time. So uh, maybe sometimes there was a show host and then there was someone maybe reading the news and doing the public service announcements. Was that something that happened? Yeah. yeah. So what we would do sometimes, I mean, certainly to, when you start off, when you started off as an announcer, you, you didn't start off doing a show. You started off announcing, doing some continuity in somebody else's show reading some public service announcements or uh, uh, some announcements, or maybe there would be a, a small segment about things happening in the community uh, or what's happening on campus tonight, that sort of thing. So they, they had these, and they also had short news segments, but they generally had a news hosting that would read out of Studio B, um, so they would have breakaways for the news. And I didn't get involved on the news side too much, okay. but they would have a news team that would read the news and I would do some continuity or some, uh, some announcements or some community stuff during other people's shows. And that's how I kind of started that. Okay. Um, so how long do you think you felt until you felt comfortable, uh, at the station working with other people and, and comfortable on the air? Was it a couple of months? Did it take a little bit longer, uh, for either way? Well, comfortable working at the station was one thing. Comfortable on air was something completely different. I I think I, I was comfortable working at the station relatively quickly because, frankly, back then, you know, it was great to have people come in and want to help and volunteer and be a part of it. So I would work with uh, people like uh, Tom D'Agostino is the name that, uh, you know, it just came into my mind. You talked about people who were work, working at the quad that, that day. He was probably one of those people. And he got me involved very quickly in doing remotes. Um, you know, the guy, ca- somebody's got to carry all the equipment to mm-hmm. the remotes. And somebody's got to run all those cables and uh so he didn't have to do that. He would have me do all that. 
Um, and then when I became the uh, the, uh, the remote uh, chief engineer, then I was the guy that was telling other people, you know, hey, carry that up the stairs and, you know, try to get that hooked up to a uh, phone line. Because we, you know, we used to, when we did remotes, we had to have phone lines. And often the station didn't have money to buy phone lines. So one of the early tricks you learned as a, as a remote engineer was how to steal phone lines that, uh, and you didn't hear me say that, right? Right. So, you know, I had to, you know, uh, 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 borrow other people's phone lines for, for a remote uh, that you would uh, tap into. Because uh, we were running on a shoestring back then, too, uh, which I guess is not very different over the years. I think now the station is doing great. But uh, we we had to tap in. We had to find phone lines. We had to tap into the phone lines. and so forth and so on. But I remember when we did the remotes over at uh, Hempstead Town Hall, that there was a line that, that uh, we owned between Hempstead Town Hall and our studios that was specifically for those uh, remotes that we could tap into that line. Uh, and we had sponsors for that, or, you know, underwriters for that. Um, so, uh, and then there was Bill's Meadowbrook, which was the bar next door, and we would... Uh, do jazz concerts from there and we had a line to there but when we would go to other places you had to see where, where you could find the line and you tap into the line then you had to run the cables and so that that was stuff i learned very quickly and that uh became uh that was fun you know it really was fun and you felt like you were part of something very quickly and then you were part of you know a finished product very quickly in that case now i didn't have to be on air to be a part of it and I found that I was more comfortable doing things in support of what was happening on there than actually being on there. Uh, as I said, I did for uh, a year, I did a, a show at night and I did my own uh, uh, ethnic music show. Um, but I, I would say I was probably most comfortable uh, being the guy that helped get make things happen at the station. Hmm. Those people are always appreciated. It's a it's a good niche to have, and it's really where my career took me as well. I mean, my career took me more towards uh, management and marketing and public relations and those areas than it did take me to being on air. Okay, who uh, you've mentioned a few names as we've been talking. Who were some of the other people who were helpful in your early days at WVHC? Oh well, well, I mean, I. I you know, as, as time went on, uh, you know, there were people like the, the people that were the, uh, the station manager right before I was station manager uh, was Steve Fendel. Mm -hmm. And the uh, program manager right before I was station manager was uh, Linda Dayleader. And uh, then Steve Graziano was the program manager when I was the station manager. So we worked very closely with those people. Um, it's yeah, it's tough to remember other names. I mean, you know, talking about forty years ago now. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, you know, I worked a lot with Teddy. As I said, I was involved on the engineering side for quite a while as the chief engineer, mostly responsible for scheduling the engineers and making sure the classes were held and that the people were trained, and that uh, you know we always had the right people behind the board, um, and then. Uh, and then, of course, working with Jeffrey, running the station. I mean, 
that was such an invaluable experience. I mean, I think that if I think, can think of one thing that I took with me really throughout the whole rest of my career was the time I spent uh, with Jeffrey, you know, running the station from doing the marketing, from uh, uh, the relationship with the university, from the staffing, um, all of those things, raising funds, um, all the things that it took to keep that station on the air. Those very involved with those things. Uh, Sue Zizza, you know, was somebody very close with. Uh, Sue and I worked uh, uh, closely on a, on a lot of different things. Uh, Scott Cinnamon, who uh, kind of one of the people who came in behind me uh, later. Uh, Scott was, uh, you know, very involved in, in, in all the things and supported us and uh, became a station manager right, a year or two behind me. Hmm. So, uh, you know, these are people we were very involved with at the station. So obviously, uh, Jeff Krause played a, a major part in your time there at the station. And, and it sounds like you had a great relationship with him. When you first met him, uh, I mean, there's a there's a, a commonality to the words that people use to describe Jeff. And, and there's usually the when you first meet him and then after you've had a chance to work with him for a little while. Do you remember first impressions of Jeff? Yeah, I mean, you, you know, it, it, it was when you first meet him, you, you know, it was kind of he was this this major force. And uh, he also had, you know, a, a sort of a, a little bit sarcastic, a little bit um, uh, pompous style to him that, uh, you know, you kind of, you know, as, as, you know, I'm a student then, right? So, you know, I'm thinking, oh, you know, who is this guy? And, you know, am I ever going to fit in here? So, yeah, I mean, you know, if you don't, until you get to know him, you, you kind of are a little afraid of him being, you know, a student. Mm-hmm. You're kind of a little, you know, you don't know how to take his sense of humor. Um, because he had a very sort of unique and, as I said, often sarcastic sense of humor. Um, he was involved in a lot of things in radio and produced a lot of programming you know, in commercial radio at that time that was very important. And so you kind of, you know, you knew you were dealing with, with a force. Mm. So, um, yeah, it was, it, was, uh, um, it, it was hard to get used to him at first. But once you got to know him, I mean, you know, you become endeared to him and you really can appreciate what he had to offer and who he was and what he brought to the table and how he made things happen and how, what he could teach you. Mm. And that's when you start to really appreciate him and that, and that he can be a very giving person. And that's, uh, it made it, made it such a unique experience. Obviously Hofstra radio meant, uh, a lot to you then and since, and it's been part of your life. Um, can you think back to, you know, that, that first day on the quad, when you, you see and hear the radio station, you go over and meet them. Did you, did you have any expectations for working at the station? What did you think it would be? Would it be a big part of your life or was it just something to check out? Can you, can you put yourself back in your shoes at 18 and say, this is, this is what I was hoping for, or this is what I thought? You know, when I first arrived at Hofstra, I thought that uh, it would be sort of this uh, experience where uh, uh, I could get involved with uh, all the different forms of media and have an opportunity to uh, uh, really test out where I was going to land up, 
what I didn't realize was I was going to get so involved with Hofstra Radio that it sort of became the the definition of my time at Hofstra, which was which was really fantastic. And what I also didn't realize would happen when I started working with Hofstra Radio, that it really would provide me with the opportunity to learn all different parts of media. I mean, you know, at Hofstra Radio, where you get involved with not only being on air, but in managing an operation, in managing people, in being involved in uh, in producing uh, productions. In this case, they were radio productions, but just in producing some any productions in general, uh, to be involved in in how to uh, uh, set up operations and, and deliver on. Uh, what you need to deliver on, how to manage budgets, how to manage uh, marketing, how to, how to market your products, how to make sure uh, that people were listening to what you were producing, how to create the, uh, uh, the cohesive view of what uh, the station was. Uh, we did uh, logos, we did um, um, uh, marketing to the community, uh, we brought the community in. We did fundraisers with the community. Uh, these were all part of, of what we had to do at Hofstra Radio. And, and those things are all things that you take with you, no matter where you go in media. Those are all important skills that you take with you. When I look back at the, the things that the skills that I learned in radio, which I never expected to learn, and I look at how I applied them to other things that I did in the media industry, and you, there's direct parallels. So uh, you never expect to find that when you go to work at something like a, a college radio station, but that really becomes the definition of, of what the media, of all media that you get involved with later. I want to add that uh, right now I am the president of the Hofstra Radio Alumni Association. And the Alumni Association uh, was developed in order to support both uh, the current radio station and the uh, current staff and the, uh, the new students coming up in Hofstra Radio, but also to support those alumni who are formerly from the radio station to help them with uh, career opportunities to help them with uh, being in touch with people who are in the industry now and to help them to advance their careers and also to provide scholarships uh, to current uh, uh, people in the uh, radio station and also to help uh, uh, to recognize uh, those alumni and the achievements they've had through the Hofstra Radio Hall of Fame which is something that we started uh, some uh, uh, 10 or 15 years ago and uh, have a number of people that are a part of that Hall of Fame who are both involved in Hofstra Radio and have become uh, uh, very highly acclaimed within their fields in uh, the uh, media industry uh, throughout the, the world, actually. So I think we've done a, a good job trying to preserve uh, the history of Hofstra Radio through the uh, uh, Hall of Fame and also to uh, help the next generation of uh, radio uh, alumni through the, uh, uh, the awards and the uh, uh, scholarships that we offer each year.